Welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast. For anyone who wants to build and grow a career in IT, develop and improve your strengths and skills, be inspired and motivated by the successes of others, manage your career progression, and achieve your IT career goals. And now, your host, Phil Burgess. Welcome to episode 85 of the IT Career Energizer podcast. My guest on today's show is Justin Searles. Justin is co-founder of Test Double, an agency of highly skilled developers on a mission to fix what's broken in software. As well as running Test Double, Justin is also an occasional conference speaker. So Justin, can I ask you to expand on that very brief bio and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, I'm a lifelong consultant. I remember taking my internship when I was graduating with a computer science degree, and the one piece of advice uh, that I was given was to go into consulting because you'd get a whole lot of different project experience right out the gate. And humans are nothing if not pattern recognition machines. Uh, you know, before there was machine learning, there was learning, learning. And so feeding lots and lots of project examples has provided to me this just tremendous backstop of experience. So while I'm always like learning and picking up new things through these experiences, one thing that's really helpful is I deeply understand how software teams fail and struggle and why software is so rotten in so many cases in such a deep way that, that I feel like it brings more credibility to bear when uh, I have a proposal for a way to make things better. Uh, and so, you know, the dueling banjos of my life so far has been to uh, really immerse myself in all the ways that software is challenging or problematic or emblematic of human problems, uh, and then find a pivot somewhere to try to start to make things better. And presumably from that, you created Test Double? Yes. Uh, I discovered early on that the best way to have an impact is through people who are more positively minded than myself. <laughs> so we started right. started hiring uh, really, really, really bright developers who have a passion for teaching, mentoring, working closely with folks. And so that's that's our model, really, is we go and sit with your team and work with you as additional team members. And then over three months, six months, it's no magic bullet, try to move the needle and help your team get better in the ways that your team wants to get better. Okay. Justin, can you maybe share a unique career tip with the IT Career Energizer audience, one they probably should know but don't? Well, another aspect, I guess, of me is I like to be needlessly provocative. Uh, So with this advice, I'd say is to not do what you love. I think that a lot of times in life, and as a result in any industry, like in software, we're encouraged to follow our passions uh, we're encouraged to find something interesting or exciting. But the problem is that, like, you know, humans are pretty predictable creatures, and most of the things that are interesting and exciting are going to be interesting and exciting to lots of people. So, you know, like, if I'm giving a talk at a university uh, to computer science students, I'll ask them every time to raise their hand, like, who wants to go into video game development? And a lot of hands go up. Too many hands go up than the market really needs in terms of video game developers. And as a result, the people I know who work as video game developers have sacrificed years and years of overtime, very low salaries relative to what they could earn elsewise. And I think about that a lot because not only in terms of one's like personal success does that affect, but there's also just like software is a many splendored series of like different vectors and sides of problems. If you look at a software team, like the number one thing that everyone's going to be looking at is how do I get these features uh, through this you know process uh, and shipped into production? There's a lot that goes into that of course, but 
in my view, what I find way more interesting is what are all the things that are not that, that the team values, that they think is important, that if they had a rainy day would be the first thing that they did. But because the rainy day never comes, because businesses are always pushing teams to get as much possible done uh, on any given day, I look and I ask like, okay, well, what balls are being dropped here? And what's a, what's a longer term bet that I can make? For example, in my own life, I made that bet uh, 10 years ago to like really focus on JavaScript testing because all these cool Java testing tools were coming along. People were doing TDD full time. And I was like, I'm going to focus on JavaScript testing. So I built a bunch of tools, did a lot of training, did a lot of talks. And instead of competing to be like one of the best Java developer programmers in the world and competing with millions of people, I was competing to be like the best JavaScript tester in the world. And I was competing against five people, right? And so there's a value there. There's its own path of mastery, for sure. It's a speciality. But that niche is something you could only find if you were focused more on what people need than what you want. Yeah. So yeah, as you say, it's more about finding where you can add value as opposed to following your passion. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Justin, can you tell us maybe about your worst IT career moments and what you learned from that experience? You know, I talked a little bit about um, long suffering in uh, consulting engagements. And early in my career, I was at a large financial institution that had a main headquarters that was a wonderful, awesome office full of people. Everyone's title in the financial organization is, is vice president or higher. So uh, hundreds of VPs go into the office every day and they do financial stuff. But then they had a, a simultaneous responsibility to process like 30,000, 40,000 pieces of mail inbound every day to adjudicate transactions on retirement plans and that sort of thing. And that happened offsite in like, you know, the shady part of town and the people there were not paid very well and the, and the physical space was not great. And it was very remote. It was like a 45 minute drive. And unfortunately, I was assigned to the part of the project that would like have me over there every day. And I was building a, uh, an OCR system for better recognition of what kind of mail we're getting when so they can mark it up and it would get routed to the right department. And this was a huge, epic, multi-million dollar, multi-year project to kind of automate uh, the workflows for, for their inbound mail. And they had a big go live. And this is like 150 different people throughout all these different IT organizations. It was like a weekend thing. You know, everyone is working crazy over time. And there's a, there's a specific time of night that they're going to do this changeover that was like uh, deemed to be the safest. And it was something like, everything's going to go live all at once at like 2 a.m. on a Saturday. And so there I am, ready to go. I'm the only one in this building in this dark, sketchy part of Colorado. And the time comes and it passes and I, nothing happens. And then, you know, like I notice my internet's out. And then I notice that like the phone doesn't work uh, because it's a, a voice over IP phone, I learned later. What had happened we were all immediately worried, like, oh, my goodness, like, what did we do? Some of these servers that we were replacing had literally never been rebooted, uh, you know, in their <laughs> in their entire life. And so the idea of, like, what, what just happened, what we learned, and unfortunately for me, like, one thing I learned is, like, always carry a cell phone because there was no way anyone could contact me. I was just there by myself for hours trying to figure out what to do just in case, you know, things came back online. Uh <laughs> What had happened was, had nothing to do with the launch. It was just coincidentally that day, the cleaners were cleaning the server room and one of them inadvertently knocked a fire extinguisher down, which hit the big red button, which was the emergency power shutoff to the entire server facility. Uh, that turned off all of these servers that had never been turned off before uh, and put the company like, you know, on a many day path to just getting online again with the old system, much less transitioning to the new. And 
what I realized was coming from that experience, like, is that it is so vital to make your production deployment of your new thing somewhat less dramatic than that, (laughs) you know, and we've, we've incrementally gotten better with agile with, especially recently with continuous delivery with like, you know, how on demand cloud services can be like shipping, uh, making shipping easy to do something you can do often, something that's not a big deal is something that can only, you're only ever going to get to that outcome if you start early and you just do it all the time. And if you do it all the time, it's really painful uh, eventually you'll find ways to mitigate that pain. But if you just like let all that fear and uncertainty about pile up into this big two year event, all you're going to end up with is like, you know, a, a gigantic pizza party and a lot of hope. <laughs> I really did learn a lot from that experience. Okay. So moving away from your worst IT career moment, can you tell us about your career highlight or greatest success? Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, you know, we started the company Testable and I'm a very, very cautious individual. I did not want to hire people. Uh, I was really afraid of being like, you know, responsible for them forever. I was also worried about like how somebody might represent us and how much of a jerk I might be because I, I have a lot of controlling tendencies. And so I was very cautious. Unfortunately, my, my business partner, Todd, is like incredibly empathetic, uh, really good at organizational thinking, good manager. Uh, and he pushed us towards hiring. But all like I've been, I, I came to it kicking and screaming and because we're a fully remote company, everyone works from home. It's one thing to see like, you know, another person gets added to our Slack channel or to email or even on the website or something, or we see how many like, like lists of spreadsheets of like, who's at what client. And I knew the company was getting bigger, but the thing that I looked to as we hired people was what we're really doing is we're picking people who all believe in our vision of like improving how the world writes software, but each bring something to it that no one else in the company could. And we're at 40 people now and the software industry is broken in more than 40 different ways. And (laughs) I love that we're finding people who contribute to all those different ways in terms of making it better. That's how I kind of got on board over time. But it wasn't until like one of our winter retreats, we get everyone all together. We invite uh, them to bring a plus one, you know, usually in a nice warm location. And we had a big dinner and I saw like all of these people like in person for the first time on this huge group. It was like with the plus ones, it was like 60 people. And it blew my mind to see this family that we'd created and the the instant sort of camaraderie, respect and affection that everyone had for each other from all of this hard work that we do all year. And to see that we have like mobilized effectively a very healthy team of people who are then able to go and make other teams more healthy uh, is something that I've just, I, I felt immense joy to see. Yeah, I can understand that. Absolutely. Yes. So Justin, what excites you about the future of the IT industry and careers in IT in particular? You know, you can ask a dozen different like executives and business leaders, and I feel like half of them would tell you that in 10 years, everyone's going to write code. And the other half will say that in 10 years, nobody's going to write code. (laughs) And I think about that a lot, right? Because as somebody who's very, very front and center and staring in the face, like a lot of very broken custom software, and I'm only reminded of, of just how far off the eight ball we really are if the dream is for you know, computers to figure out how to do this better than we do on their own. I've seen, you know, like landing pages that actually like are built via AI and like auto optimize as they're monitoring conversions and things like, like that is the exception, not the rule, right? Like, so I don't believe that like at any point, custom software is going to become plug and play on a fundamental level, just because every single custom software project is only necessary because you're creating something that's never been created before. So there's that on that one side. But then on the other side is 
like our tools continue to get a lot better. Our access to programming education continues to get a lot better. Like, like I, this weird juxtaposition of these two concepts, like everyone's going to code and nobody's going to code, where I think of like the definition of what coding was to me when I was starting 15 years ago was somebody with a computer science degree with a pocket protector in their pocket, I suppose. Uh, you know, like a nerdy kind of geeky image of somebody who's like focused on this like kind of narrow set of, of theoretical things. And now I'm sort of seeing just this dissipation of what programming means as it's become more accessible. So that it's like really just like, any amount of making a computer do things like configuring if this, then that is programming, right? Lots of things that are very, very high level, like programming uh, uh, home automation stuff with uh, JavaScript. The Siri shortcuts just came out this week with iOS 12, and that's going to let people use the shortcuts app to build their own custom workflows, even do things like, you know, advanced things like SSH into other computers or run JavaScript in a frame in, in, in a window. And so on one level, how we define programming has changed such that this question is no longer really relevant because I think both sides are kind of going to be right. And that's what I find really exciting is because what we've been doing clearly hasn't been working and looking at, you know, the one truth in all of this is Fred Brooks rule that, you know, there's no silver bullet. We're not going to find a computer or an AI one day that's that's going to solve this for us. But I don't think that's necessarily whether that's what they meant or not. I don't think that's necessarily where we're going to be if, if we're saying like, you know, programming is no longer necessary. What, it, what we might mean is programming is no longer necessary as a discrete job inside of all these companies. Like everyone does it to some different extents and with different specialities. That that might be where we end up. Yeah. Do you see that likely to be as a result of uh, improvement of tools and, and ways of working? Yes, absolutely. And I also think that we're quickly approaching a point where certain categories of application are becoming commoditizable is the wrong word, but typifiable. For example, very often, 10 years ago, when somebody wanted any kind of app at all, a pat answer you could give them is like, start with Ruby on Rails and build it in Rails, and then we'll find a way to like wedge that into the framework. Now, like I hear from so many businesses, like, oh, I've got this problem. We have a client doing amazing stuff with like uh, real-time smart energy calculations. And I, I listened to the pitch and I was like, man, you know, the Erlang VM, like Elixir, would be a perfect fit for this problem. And they were already down that path, right? Or I listened to another pitch. And when uh, you know they describe a very, very straightforward CRUD kind of backend system of like, managing different resources, I look back at something like Rails. And I'm like, this is actually a perfect fit for Rails. Like it's, uh, You'll get tons of lift and you'll be, you'll be really ready and easy to go. And you'll spend a tenth the time than if you built a custom Node.js backend and a React frontend for this thing that doesn't really warrant that. And so my hope is that what we're slowly approaching is a sort of like a specialization of technologies, not based on the kind of like the raw implementation details of those technologies like we had in like previous generations of languages, but rather that we're seeing specialization based on application, based on like the, the problem that they're solving. And for each of those categories, once we identify them a little bit better, I think the tools will start to fit the form and become more approachable to people. We're going to move into the reveal round now and find out a little bit more about you. Oh, goodness. Okay. So what first attracted you to a career in IT? I had an experience when I was a kid that stood out to me. Uh, we, we were going on a vacation to Florida from a cold place to a warm place. I had, uh, you know, a sweater and, and, and 
pants and a coat uh, on and checked luggage for this trip. I think it was in uh, maybe middle school at the time. And uh, the airline carrier lost all of our luggage. And so we spent like a week on the beach with like nothing but like one change of like very heavy clothing. <laughs> uh, and so like I, w- I was not at all interested in going outside. I-, I was an overweight kid anyway, and I was awkward. And so I was relishing this opportunity to not have to go outside on our uh, very outdoorsy vacation. But all I had with me was my backpack, which had like, you know, my, my homework and, and as well as a graphing calculator. And so I was just kind of tootling around with the graphing calculator until I found like this program area and I learned what it was, was sort of a, a vanilla flavor of basic. And I started making little games like guess the number games or like a, a headless CLI for playing checkers uh, with two people. And I spent the whole week building that stuff. And I just saw this tremendous potential for magic, for making a computer do what I wanted it to do by dint of just spending enough time in a very tight feedback loop, the endorphins of like, write a little thing, see it not work, change it a little (laughs) bit, see it work, see that tightly wound, without having to talk to other people, just like make independent progress, uh, that addicted me. So that's probably what got me into it. What is the best career advice you've ever received? The best advice? Well, I already shared the one, which was going into consulting, so you get a lot of different experience to fuel your abilities. Another one, it might be to, uh, actually, I lied. That, that person gave me two pieces of advice on my last day of mentorship. The other one was, you know, uh, you're a college student, live beneath your means as long as humanly possible. And uh, I probably took that to an extreme that the, that the individual didn't mean um, in that after graduating college, we got the smallest apartment we could find. We were incredibly big savers. We we're very, very careful to never overcommit. Even like, you know, we've never had a pet. We don't have kids. We don't have a lot of the responsibilities that I think an adult and people just sign up for, uh, incidentally. And, you know, all those things are great. And if you really want those things, that's awesome. But not a lot of people take the time to really think about like the long-term opportunity cost of decisions they make in their early 20s in terms of like long-term commitment. And I'm so grateful that we did take that time and really traded off like, man, I really want kids, but you know what I want more than kids? not kids. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, for all these reasons, right. And it's not like we're like overly pros and cons thing to death, everything and, and being miserable as a result. Well, the reason why I think it's useful advice, apart from getting out of like in, in the U S student loan debt, part of why I think it's reason like useful advice is financial stability provides a lubricity of movement that most people don't ever have. If you're in a job and it's a bad job and things could be better and you are financially dependent paycheck to paycheck on that job, not disappearing on you, you're going to act from a defensive crouch that is more uh, conservative. The decisions that you make inside of that job, fully just thinking about like how you work at that job is going to be more timid, is going to be like less apt to actually change the things that are bad about that job. But like if you've ever had the experience of deciding you're going to quit, or knowing that you're leaving, suddenly the job gets a lot better because you have like the courage to push your elbows out a little bit and you don't feel so inhibited. Having just like, you know, the ability, having a little bit of buffer to say like, look, it's a hot market. If this job does go away, I'll be okay. Provides so much, I think, just a mental safety, a sense of safety in, in difficult situations that as a result, I'm able to go into very, very hostile work environments and still feel a certain level of poise that I would not have otherwise. If you were to begin your IT career again right now, what would you do? 
One thing I would do that I, I deeply regret is I was so focused on, uh, so tight-fisted thinking like, this is my fight for survival. <laughs> I'm going to take every advantage that I can. I'm going to meet everyone. I'm going to network. I'm going to schmooze. I'm going to speak at every opportunity once I started speaking. And I'm going to just like look for the most valuable person in the room in terms of like their connections and their expertise and be their best friend. And two things. One, I should have known that like a slightly more gradual pace wouldn't have killed me. I'd probably have more hair. And two, I deeply regret that I didn't know that the bulk of our professional networks are made like relatively early uh, as we join a community. And they have second order consequences, second order effects where like, you know, especially if you look at LinkedIn, you look at your second degree connections. And I didn't make a conscious effort at any point to really look outside myself, to look at people who didn't look like me, uh, people from different walks of life, like socioeconomic status. I don't have a lot of or didn't have a lot of women programmers that I knew early on uh, or people of color. And I kind of had awakening in, in a sense to just how dire that was in terms of looking at our own company and seeing that the first 10, 12 people we hired were all straight white dudes. And <laughs> yes, when you're heavy referral, uh, heavily based on like, you know, referring and we're all kind of hiring from our networks to some extent, especially early on, who do they know? Yeah. And it's just more white dudes. And, you know, then you get to the size like we were when we started really taking this seriously, maybe at like 20 people. It's not insurmountable, but it's it's definitely a place where if I could do it again, I would have been spending time going to meetups, especially that were, were targeted at including people who were typically excluded in software. And what career objectives are you currently focusing on? Well, one thing is um, being a co-founder is a nebulous term. Uh, the problem with being a co-founder at a company is that it describes a person and not a role. <laughs> and so I've been a co-founder for seven years now. But the thing is, you can't hire another co-founder seven years later if you decide you want to work less. You have to actually go through the work of figuring out, like, what does that mean? What does that entail? What's this basket of responsibility that you have? We've done that over the last three and a half, four years where, where my business partner, Todd, and I, we sat down and we've kind of like built an accountability chart. These are all the things that have to happen for our business to be successful. And we have now a clear sense of who needs to be in what seats to run this company effectively. And right now we're doing three jobs each and two of them poorly. So we've done a good job of hiring in people to manage like people engagement, a person to manage recruiting. And I found myself landing on this org chart, I guess, responsible for like marketing and sales, which I never would have believed would be my job. I see myself as a programmer first, as a consultant who maybe can be uh, do training and stuff. But when I look at it now, I'm, I'm really trying to figure out how do we make this um, success that we've had so far? How do I operationalize a marketing funnel that leads into a sales process that is repeatable by humans who are not us? Yeah so that this company can sustain itself over the longer term. And so I'm still knee-deep in that education, uh, but it's been pretty enlightening so far. And what's the number one non-technical skill that has helped you in your career so far? Probably my liberal arts education in college exposed me to different psychologies, like, like, like psychology coursework, philosophy coursework, even different like world religions, history, political science, journalism, I think all of these things, as well as the habits that, that came after them between like the types of books that I read and the types of news and articles that I consume, 
all of that kind of made me a more well-rounded individual. And I think that the to be really great at software, as in I'm really great at algorithmic analysis of complexity of like 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 C functions, that is a useful skill and the market values it, but it values it as a commodity. What it doesn't have as clear a price sticker on is how can somebody take something from a domain like selling car insurance or helping retail overcome like the current downturn that they're in, you know, like take a domain, combine it with like a very, very broad basis of like life experience and understanding, uh, and then still at the same time have the practical skills to make that a reality. And how do you do all three of those things and just be one human? Uh, and so, so having that like wide basis to build on top of uh, that my liberal arts education gave me has been just tremendous. Justin, can you maybe share a parting piece of career advice with the IT career energizer audience? One of the things that, that has changed, and it's, it's changed gradually, especially since smartphones kind of dawned on us 11 years ago, Gradually, the smartphone and even our desktop operating systems and, and now browsers has gotten has optimized for its ability to distract our attention or to help us. You know, like in the '90s, we had multitasking. Here, we have you know, like a, 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 an order of magnitude more because you just multiply by the number of tabs open. So, I think a lot about context switching than. If I context switch between ten different tasks over the course of an hour and I do it really rapidly. I will fail to acknowledge and, and realize that there is a tremendous cost in, in the form of some, what some people call attention residue, where like even the emotional valence of the thing that I just did informs the next thing that I do. And so like the, to warm up the engine or the module in my brain to like do my next task uh, takes a lot more time. And so I've been very focused in the last couple of years in, in figuring out how do I simultaneously remain a connected human, talking to lots of people, getting lots of different vibrant input in my life uh, and sharing with a lot of different people, but also be deeply productive and have prolonged stretches of profound productivity where I can think deep thoughts. Uh, and so uh, I've been reorganizing my life since that moment. I, I would encourage other people to as well. Uh, it could be as simple as turning notifications off. It could be as simple as like taking advantage of new features like screen time that help you observe and or limit how often you're glued to distracting things. But I'd also, there's a couple of books I'd recommend. One is uh, called uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport, which focuses on uh, making an economic argument for how this is like how a control and mastery of your attention is going to be a tremendously marketable skill in the near future. Uh, and the other one is, uh, I forgot the author's name, uh, called Hyperfocus, and it's relatively recent. And, th- and this is a more practical guide to kind of hacking the current world of Slack and notifications and so forth into an ability to to be highly productive uh, in this day and age. And finally, what's the best way we can find out more about you and connect with you? I probably spend most of my time, sadly, on Twitter, where my last name is my handle, just S-E-A-R-L-S. My wife's an educator, so she teaches kids our last name by saying it's like pearls, but with an S instead of a P. So Twitter, first and foremost, is probably the easiest way to reach me, get my attention, or to see what I'm up to. But additionally, anyone who's willing to like listen to me talk, uh, whether it's a, with a talk, a podcast, a training, uh, comes with a, an uh, express warranty on my part that if you email me, I will reply. At the very least, if I can't answer your question, I'll try to find a resource that can. Uh, so you can reach out to me, uh, and best address for that is uh, Justin, uh, my first name, at testdouble.com. 
Great. Okay. Um, Justin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great chatting with you. You too, Phil. Thank you so much for having me. It's really nice when uh, people ask for my advice instead of me just having to give it unsolicited. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed listening in to today's episode and to my guest career tips, advice, and experiences. You'll find a show notes page for today's episode on the IT Career Energizer website, which will be itcareerenergizer.com slash e and then the number of today's episode. And a quick reminder that the show has now three episodes every week on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. So make sure that you are subscribed to the show to get new episodes automatically downloaded. Also, don't forget to join the IT Career Energizer Community Facebook group. You'll get to engage with other like-minded people, get to find out more about upcoming guests and other episodes, and can get involved in the future direction of the podcast. It really is a great pleasure to be able to talk to so many inspirational people from across the industry and to be able to share their stories and advice with you. Thanks for listening, and remember, if you're not growing your career, you're slowing your career. Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, visit itcareerenergizer.com.